All right, we're looking at Exodus, uh, we're looking at a handful of passages. We're going to read Exodus 5, 1 through 2, and then skip to 7, chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, and then skip again to chapter 9, verse 13, through chapter 10, verse 1. And we are basically, uh, just to kind of tell you beforehand what we're looking at, uh, this is the story of, of the plagues that God sends on Egypt. And so we're going to basically be looking at the first plague and then the seventh plague, just to give you an idea of of what's going on here. Let's give our attention to God's word. It says, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And then chapter 7, verse 14 and following. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt. Over, the, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned, again, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water, for the, the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. And now skipping to nine, chapter 9, verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you, on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. And you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. 
Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire and rain down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never had been, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in, all, in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the, and the emmer were not struck down, for they, are late, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I, <clears throat> for I have hardened his heart, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let me pray for us before we look at it further. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be with us tonight, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would be here to help us to see what you would have us to see of your grace and your mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I appreciate you bearing with a, uh, obviously, a little bit longer passage tonight. Um, thought that it was important to kind of get the whole sense of, uh, right, we're going to cover all ten plagues in a sense, and so at least get a couple of them. But I want to begin this way. Uh, a friend of mine recently, I guess in the last uh, couple months, um, a good friend of mine, his dad passed away. And so in, uh, you know, one of the things you obviously have to do is go through, go through their things and, and deal with their estate. And in his dad's things, he found a Rolex, a Rolex watch. And when he gets back home, you know, eventually he's got to uh, figure out what, you know, what, what this thing is and what it's worth. Uh, because he said, you know, I thought to myself, my dad is, he's a very unique guy. And he's the kind of guy that I could absolutely see him, see him buying a fake Rolex. And I could totally see him buying a real Rolex. And so it's a hard call. And so he, uh, he goes online to try to learn about it, see if he can figure out if it's real or fake. And there's just a world of information about it. Um, because the Rolex is often faked, right? I mean, you, you're certainly aware of that. Um, and as, as good as some of the fakes are, you can always tell the difference. 
There's all kinds of different ways that distinguish a fake from the real Rolex. And some fakes get a whole lot of them right, but none of them get all the way there. Um, yeah, the, the, there's only one real Rolex watch. And so you either have something that is very valuable or you have something that's basically worthless. Unfortunately for my friend, it turned out to not be real. But uh, I use that as an illustration of what we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, If you've been with us, you know this semester we're studying through Exodus. And we're saying that this great story of God's salvation is, is really the pattern of salvation. That is to say that the way God saves in the Old Testament, as we see it in Exodus, is the same way that he saves today. And so as we look at these stories, we can learn a great deal about what it looks like to experience God's salvation here and now through these stories. And tonight, what I think we see from this uh, section of the plagues is that salvation comes from God alone. Or in other words, there is only one true God. There's only one. Often imitated, never duplicated, often faked, much like the Rolex. There's only one true God, and salvation comes only from Him. So tonight I want to look at three things uh, quickly with you. First, we're going to see that God is the Lord of creation. Secondly, we'll see that God is the Lord of the heart. Thirdly and finally, we'll see that God is the Lord of salvation. And let me say thank you to my former campus minister, Les Newsom, uh, for this uh, this outline, the way he shaped this up. Thanks, Les. All right, so first, the Lord of creation. Um, let's take a step back for just a second and sort of rehearse where we've been and where we are in the, in the grand scheme of things in Exodus. Right? Israel is enslaved in Egypt. God has promised to rescue them by having Moses go speak to Pharaoh, demand his people. And we, uh, what we read in 5, 1 through 2, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who is this God that you're, is demanding I let his people go? And I want to suggest to you that, that what the plagues are, they are God answering that question from Pharaoh. So who is this God? That's what the plagues are, God answering that question. Because basically what you see throughout this, uh, this series of repetition, these ten plagues, is that Pharaoh rejects the authority of Yahweh, right? The one true God, the Lord of everything, because he doesn't let his people go. And so God responds, and, and you see this repetition. Uh, Moses says, let God's people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And so uh, what we saw was in the first one, that God turns the Nile River and all the rest of the water in Egypt into blood. And when that happens, right, the, the Nile is, the, uh, you know, is huge for, Israel, uh, for, uh, for Egypt, right? It's the water they drink, it waters their crops, uh, they get food from the fish in the river, that sort of stuff. And so all of this dysfunction comes out of this, uh, of this judgment on the Nile, turning it to blood. It lasts for seven days and then God causes it to stop. And then Moses goes back in and says, God says, let his people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And then there's another plague. Uh, Let's see, what are the gods? Sends frogs. 
And then frogs, you know, trillions of frogs come in the land and there's just all this dysfunction that results. And so Pharaoh says, okay, all right, fine, fine. Um, I'll let his people go. And then the frogs go away. And then he says, ah, never mind. And it repeats over and over. Uh, what are the next ones? I don't have them memorized. Uh, gnats and then flies. And then uh, the Egyptian livestock dies. He sends painful sores on the people. Then there's the hail that we read about. Then locusts. Then perpetual darkness. And then finally, the, ninth, or the tenth one uh, we'll look at next week, which is the death of the, of the firstborn. All right, so here's the question, though. How do those plagues answer the question, who is the Lord? Well, here's what I want you to see. That all of those plagues seem to be attacking at least one of the gods that Egypt worshipped. Egypt worshipped a number of gods, all sorts of different gods. And each of these plagues seems to be some sort of polemic against one of their gods. And it's basically to expose them as a fake god. Uh, For example, the Nile River, like we talked about, essential to Egypt. They had at least three gods that were associated with the Nile River. uh, Osiris, Nu, and Hapi. Uh, They worshipped a goddess named Heket. And she was depicted as uh, having the head and sometimes even the body of a frog. That's the second plague. She was evidently sort of in charge, that's in quotes, of uh, fertility, certainly of frogs and apparently of people to some extent. They worshipped cows, uh, sacred cows and bulls. Uh, They worshipped Amun-Ra or Re, however you say it, the sun god. He's the one that caused the sun to rise and set, right? And then you see the darkness that God sends. Uh, Some are clearer than others, but all of these plagues seem to be taking on their gods head on, if that makes sense. And the point seems to be obvious. God's demonstrating to Pharaoh and to the people of Egypt that the gods that that they worship are nothing compared to him. And he's really basically saying, like, they don't even exist. So you worship a god of frogs? Here, here's trillions of frogs. What's your god going to do about it? And obviously the answer is nothing because the God's not real. But it actually even goes further than that, I think. A a number of scholars have looked at this and said that these plagues also seem to have some sense in which they seem to be almost a reversal of creation. Um, You have in creation God making and gathering waters, the waters of the earth, right, to bring life. And yet here waters turn to blood. God creates light. Let there be light. But here, God brings darkness. Uh, A number of them seem to match up with an undoing of creation. All right, so what do we do with all those things? How do we put all those together? Well, I think if we do put them together, uh, we can see that that God God is showing the Egyptians that there is only one real God, and it's me. That the gods that you worship... Not only, not only are the gods that you worship fake, but when you worship these gods, you only do so to your own destruction and dysfunction. Right? Um, basically, God is trying to show them that I am the God of creation. I'm the God of everything. I'm the one that made you, and I made you to worship me. And if, if and when you disobey me or worship something else... All it does is result in your own uh, death, destruction, and dysfunction. 
Because he's the creator of everything. To worship something else is to cut against the fabric of the universe. And so these plagues come in and try to... They're almost like a living illustration of of that. If you worship something other than God, which is what we were built for, it will only result in chaos and dysfunction. Uh, Think about it like this. If you decided... If you decided... uh, from now on, I'm just going to eat sawdust. Because think about it, sawdust is super cheap. Right? You could probably, I mean, people probably just give it to you. And I'm guessing, don't eat sawdust, it's probably very filling. It's super cheap, easy to come by, it's very filling. And so I'm just going to eat sawdust for the rest of my life. Obviously, how's that going to work out for you? Really poorly. Right? It's going to do nothing but cause dysfunction in your body and in your life. Why? Because your body was meant for food. Sawdust, sawdust is, it does not have the ability to sustain you. It can't bring you life. It just is not designed to. And in the same way, God is showing us that we are built for Him and to worship something other than Him, to disobey Him, which I'm paralleling those two things, it will only result in our dysfunction. What does that look like for us? Because the exact same thing is true for the Egyptians then and us now. Look, every one of us in this room and every person everywhere, you center your life around something. We all find something in our lives that's bigger than we are, We attach ourselves to it, and we want that thing to make sense of us. It's the thing that we value the most. It's basically what we worship. And that's true of you if you're not a Christian, and you very uh, openly and admittedly do not worship the God of the Bible. And it's also true of us to some extent, uh, in smaller or greater ways, if you are a Christian. Your heart is still prone to worship something else. So uh, a few examples. Um, If you set the center of your universe on your boyfriend or girlfriend, it is only going to bring dysfunction into your life. How does that work? Well, if if you make your identity, your um, the center, your your whole being is centered around this other person, they they are not meant to bear that weight, and they simply can't. And so there are a million different angles, but. When they sin against you, which they will do, when they wrong you in some small or great way, um, when anything negative happens in the relationship, all of a sudden your very identity is in question. If there's even the hint of this this may not work out, what do you do? All you do is grab hold tighter because that's your identity. It's who you are. And so you cling a little bit. You get a little bit clingier and needier or maybe more controlling because you're desperate to to let it go. And all that does, the more you grab hold of people, figuratively, of course, the more that that you need on people, the more it pushes people away. The more you control your relationship and keep them to yourselves and isolate them from your friends or from other people or other boys or girls, right? All that does is create dysfunction. It pushes people further away. If maybe your thing is having, uh, you center your life around the next fun thing over the hill, right? Whatever that might be for you. 
You live for, uh, yeah, for pleasure of some sort. Pick your pleasure. You're always going to chase it. Because you might get it in, in little doses, and it's fun, and you feel alive, but then it ends. You sober up. Um, the experience ends. Whatever. And then you're left trying to figure out who you are again. And needing that thing. And so you go back to it. And you go back to it more and more. And, right, that's what addiction looks like. All of a sudden, you're forsaking your relationships and your studies and everything else. And your life crumbles apart. And this is the last one I want to end on. And I feel like I harp on this all the time. But, right, if you wrap your identity around your grades or your resume, um, your performance in class... It's only going to result in dysfunction. What does that look like? Because look, if your identity is a number, then if, if it's your grades, then basically you, your identity becomes that number. You're busier and busier to get better and better grades. It's your world. And the, um, look, I, gosh, I've talked to so many of you, you know, one-on-one about how you lament the fact that that your relationships, like your friendships are, are faltering because you don't have time. And is it possible that this is why? Because you have less time for those sorts of things because you dig in on school and it just brings dysfunction into your life. You get more and more stressed. You see people as competition more and more. It's just dysfunction and chaos. All right, so we see that that God is the Lord of creation because he sends these plagues. Uh, He's the only true God, and worshiping anything else is going to destroy us. Uh, But I want want you to look at one other thing, uh, second point tonight, that God is the Lord of the heart. I keep clipping along. God is the Lord of the heart. Um, That is to say that God is sovereign over even our hearts. Uh, Only... God is the only thing, the only person that can change our hearts. Look, all throughout the account of these plagues, if you go home and read them, uh, the condition of Pharaoh's heart is a recurring theme. And what you see is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened throughout. But I want you to notice who is responsible for Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Right now, as you think about it, what, you know, think about what would your answer be? Who is it? What's the, what's the reason his heart is hardened? Look at 9, uh, 34 through 10, 1 again. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Uh, and then you skip on down uh, into, what, 10, and it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. So wait. Who is responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart? Well, the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. 815, 832, 9:34. And it says that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. 9, 12, 10, uh, 1, 10, 20, 27, 11, 10, 14, 8. And then there's a number of times where it talks about it just sort of passively. That his heart is hardened. But there's a, re- <clears throat> there's a real sense in which both are true. Right? The Bible basically looks at us and it holds up these two truths and it doesn't seek to reconcile them. It just says that they're both true. That on the, that on the one hand, God is sovereign over everything, including people's hearts. 
and, not but, but and, people are still responsible for their own actions, including uh, the hardening and softening of their own hearts, right? It's still, up, it's still up to you to choose God, to worship Him. It shows that both are true, but I think it's fair to say that it shows that one is more fundamental to the other, that God's sovereignty is fundamental. Look, so what do you do with this? And look, if you've been at Redeemer, right, this is what uh, the pastor's been preaching through for the last couple of weeks, and so we can't do it justice here, but we're going to have to, I want to give you a couple of thoughts Because this is really hard stuff, and if you want to talk about it one-on-one, I'd love to do that. I I get it. This is tough. Um, A couple of thoughts. First, and this might sound strange, but I want you to think about the mercy of God. These plagues are designed to wake Pharaoh and his people up to the reality that they're destroying themselves by disobeying God and worshiping other gods. Right? God says as much to Pharaoh in 915. He says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God looks at Pharaoh and says, look, I could have just started out by just like, you know, wiping you out. But I'm not doing that. He sends these plagues as a mercy. It's a painful mercy, but it's still a mercy. We even see, you even see in, in nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 20, that some of the people actually do hear God's word. And they, and they uh, repent, so to speak. They, they do what he says. So look, for me and you, what do you do when you feel the pain? Yeah, we'll call it the pain of disobedience. Or, or the dysfunction and chaos that results when you center your life on something else. What do you do with that? I, I want to suggest to you that, that, is, that when you feel that, as painful as it is, that it is God's mercy to you and that you should go to him and not away from him. That you should move towards the God that you have not worshipped. Because it's a mercy. He's calling you. He's basically saying, wake up. This is killing you. Second quick thought on this idea is, is this. And this might sound like a cop-out, but I don't, I don't think it is. Look, I can't put, I can't, even if you give me all the time in the world to sit and talk with you about it, I can't put a nice, neat bow on this and say, like, oh, well, look, I'll just show you the equation, how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fits together. I can't do it. Um, but Romans 9, uh, you know, one place, is not afraid to point out the reality of the situation. It basically looks at us and says, God is God. He's the creator, and we're the creation. We're the creature. And look, doesn't it have to be true? I want you to think about this if you have a problem with this, and I totally get that. Doesn't it have to be true that if God really is almighty and all everything, that he's infinite and eternal, then certainly he's going to do some things that are beyond our understanding. Right? If we say that we'll only worship a God that we can wrap our minds around, then we're really just saying, then we've elevated our mind, our reasoning, to the level of God. Right? We all want to tend to have a God that's big enough He can do anything, but small enough that He still answers to us. And certainly that's just not the case, right? If He's all everything. 
You can think about it like, um, like how parents, Amy and I, for instance, deal with our kids. Right? When our kids were younger, they just could not wrap their mind, if we play outside, they could not wrap their minds around the fact of why they cannot play in or run into the street. And if you stop one of them from running into the street, they would be, it would make them so angry and they might start crying or get mad about it. Right? They just, it, why is that? Because they're three or two or whatever. And they're, you know, we're not the most brilliant people ever, but our minds just operate on a different plane than theirs. Right? You get the idea. Certainly that's true uh, in our relationship with God. So let me wind up this thought uh, with this, or this point with this thought. Look, the fact that God alone is the Lord of the heart is actually a great thing. Because just like the plagues, you saw that the, uh, the Pharaoh's magicians or whatever, priests or whatever you want to call them, that they could actually recreate the chaos in some of the plagues, right? And you might wonder, like, what is that? Or, you know, are they just as strong? But I want you to notice that was all they could do was recreate the chaos. They couldn't fix it. Right? It's almost like God would say, like, oh, yeah, I am well aware that you can create problems. Congratulations. But God's not sarcastic, I don't think, not, not usually. But, but you can't fix the problem. Yes, you can harden your heart, but you know what you can't do? Soften it. I'm the only one that can do that. And so what I want you to see is that if you're, if you're here tonight and you think you're worried, maybe you're concerned for the first time that maybe your heart is hard. I want you to see that that is... That's evidence of God softening your heart. And I want you to go to the God that softens hearts. You should cry out to Him. Move towards Him. And if God has worked in your life previously to soften your heart, i.e. you're a Christian, then this truth should cause you to look back and say, wow, the only reason that my heart was ever soft enough even just to say, like, I kind of am into Jesus. I kind of need Him. It's because He softened your heart. And it really is by grace. He's had mercy on you. Alright, thirdly, finally, and very quickly. I want you to see that God is the Lord of salvation. God is the Lord of salvation. Um, yeah, the last thing I want you to see is that this is, it is only this one true God that can bring salvation. We didn't read this earlier, but uh, in chapter 7, verse 4, God says this. Listen. Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, and the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. You hear what he said? God says he's not going to listen to you. I'm going to save my people by great acts of judgment. That these plagues are at the same time an act of judgment and an act of salvation. How can it be both? Look, this is spoiler alert, right? God is going to bring his people out of Egypt. But even so, this is just a pointer to a much bigger salvation. This is all a pointer to a greater salvation where God himself comes in the flesh to this earth and where there's a salvation that, that comes about by a great act of judgment. 
if it's not obvious to you, I'm talking about Jesus Christ. Hundreds of years later after this, God is going to show up. God himself is going to show up. And all throughout his life, or at least his public ministry, he is going to do all these signs of recreation. Right? He's going to show up. He's going to walk into dysfunction and death and chaos. And he's going to bring order. He's going to take hands and feet and legs that have been withered and he's going to restore them. He's going to take... He's going to take water and he's going to turn it into wine that brings a party to life. He's going to take dead people and make them alive. And he's going to do it all to show that he's the Lord of creation. And then he's going to call all sorts of people to himself. Men and women of all different kinds. And he's going to cause them to give up their livelihoods and their families and their everythings just by his word to show that he is the Lord of the heart. But then Jesus is going to take on incredible pain and suffering throughout his life. And then he's going to be hung on a cross and he's going to take on the full weight of God's judgment on himself. Basically, he's going to take every plague that that God has in store for sin and he's going to take it on himself. These plagues we see are just a a taste. They're just a pointer to what Jesus is going to do for his people. And it's this great act of judgment that's going to be the salvation of his people because he's going to do it in our place. And it's for anybody that trusts him. He's going to bear that judgment of the plague, the ultimate plague, in our place so that we can go free. And he's going to give us his righteousness so that we actually can worship, can worship God as the center of the universe. So that we can be his sons and daughters. And all that's offered to us for free. He's the Lord of salvation and it. It's it's held out to you for free, and I hope you take it. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, what a, uh, in so many ways, a difficult passage. We we tread in deep waters, things that are hard to understand. You are a God of judgment, but you are a God that, that brings great salvation by taking that judgment. In the person and work of Jesus, would you cause us, would you help us to, would you cause us to trust in him? And we pray it in his name. Amen.